Welcome to Healthy Brain, Happy Body, a podcast from the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. I'm Dr. Saul Rosenthal, a health psychologist in the Boston area, and your host as we investigate the incredible connections between brain and body. Today's guide is Jay Gunkelman, EEG master and a driving force in our field for decades. Jay champions the importance of carefully examining the raw EEG, using it to develop a complex and deep understanding of our brain's role in shaping our experiences. Even in retirement, he's busy consulting, running EEG study groups, and giving talks like the one he will give to the NRBS on May 24th. I talked with him about the effects of psychological trauma on the brain and how neurofeedback can help rectify some of those effects. If you've ever heard Jay speak, it won't surprise you that our discussion crossed many topics and sometimes dove deep into the brain's response to traumatic events. Everyone has some idea of what trauma means, and there are certainly lots of clinicians in our audience, and many of them work with people who have trauma. Uh, But in terms of brain functioning, what does trauma mean? Well, uh, yeah, we're we're not talking about bump in the head trauma. We're talking about uh, uh, psychological trauma, which can include people having been abusive, but we're not talking about, you know, TBI, we're talking about PTSD. Um, and um, PTSD does change the brain in a foundational way. Uh, it, you know, you think, well, yeah, it was traumatic and, you know, kind of get over it. But um, it, it is something that without some very uh, specialized approaches people just get over. Uh, it, it's something that changes the way their brain functions. If you have a, a really intense um, uh, emotional charge, uh, which PTSD leaves you with, uh, the amygdala, which is an emotional processor in both hemispheres, ends up being overactive. It has um, anxiety or fear uh, in it. And at that point, it changes the thalamic gating. Now, thalamic gating isn't like a creaky old thing that opens up and closes. The, the thalamic gate is essentially uh, uh, the, the ability to pass information from your perception through the thalamus to the cortex. And uh, some information is gated out and some information is allowed through. And thalamic gating uh, basically changes the speed at which processing is done. Normally, if you look at something and and an image hits you in the eyes, basically, it takes about 100 milliseconds to make it through the thalamus all the way to the back of the head. And at that point, it arrives at the back of the head, but it's still not something you're consciously aware of. But that arrival time is uh, about 100 milliseconds. If you have the emotional charge, it's faster, significantly faster, and it's bigger. So in the raw EEG, we see the visual event-related potential of an image being seen as lambda. Lambda is the P100 event-related potential arrival at the back of the head. And essentially, it's early, which we can't tell just looking at the spontaneous EEG because we don't know when they looked at something. 
However, we can see that it's large because we can see the ERP visually in the EEG with no processing. Normally, an event-related potential takes dozens, many dozens quite often, to be able to see the waveform. Uh, Yuri Kropotov's preference is 100 repetitions to get a stable, reliable waveform. Uh, some people do it you know, quicker, but it's more noisy. Uh, the, the Australian database uh, requires uh, 40, um, and it, it doesn't give you a terribly stable signal. Uh, so, but, you know, 40 repetitions. We're talking about one, simply seeing something and having a waveform at the back of the head. And lambda is that waveform, and it's seen basically at the back of the head. Only in the eyes open condition. And lambda at the back of the head is, is essentially a, a downward positive going transient. And it's a normal variant. Just, you know, people that have their eyes working will have a lambda wave at the back of their head. But when you see one after another, after another, after another, the person is visually hypervigilant. And, you know, when, when you tell somebody to sit still, Hold still, relax, open your jaw a little bit, don't let your teeth touch, look down just a little bit and relax. Uh, we're going to have your eyes open for about 10 minutes. You know, there's, they're staring at a blank wall or, you know, something in front of them, but you didn't tell them to visually dissect the outside world. And that's what they're doing. They're visually hypervigilant. They're, they're, they're looking at a spot, another spot, another spot. They're scanning. Uh, if you've had trauma, you have a lookout. It's you. You are your lookout. And if your eyes are open, you're looking. Mm -hmm. Now, I was trained as a lifeguard to scan. You know, focus, 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 focus. You can't just kind of look back and forth because you won't really see. You have to literally focus, 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 focus. So I'm sure if you looked at a lifeguard's EEG, if they're doing their job properly, you're going to see a lot of lambda because they're visually, vigilantly screening for somebody laying on the bottom of the pool. Well, somebody with PTSD is not looking for somebody laying on the bottom of the pool. They're looking for some unknown threat of some sort. And with their eyes open, they make an excess of lambda waves because, again, the amygdala in the temporal areas are all charged up with emotion. It changes the thalamic gate. So from my eye to the back of my head, instead of being 100 milliseconds, it's more like 75, 80 milliseconds. That's a lot of speed by comparison. You know, you're, you're chopping a fifth of the traveling time off. Mm -hmm. And, you know, plunk, there you are with the signal early and big. But when you see it again and again and again and again and again, you have to stop and think. Hypervigilance, you know, that's all I see. I don't know for sure if this is PTSD or some other hypervigilance. Maybe this is a lifeguard having been trained and they're just kind of going through their paces, you know, you know, vigilantly looking around. Um, if you end up closing their eyes, Lambda's an eyes open scanning rhythm. You do not see lambda. What you end up seeing is the right posterior temporal parietal junction. 
uh, P8 in modified nomenclature, T6 in old, e.g. nomenclature 1020 terms. But the 1010 labels should be really used nowadays. So P8, the right posterior temporal, F8, T8, P8. So that right temporoparietal junction, where you perceive faces and body language and the emotional content of your visual stream. So in the right parietal area, that's spatial perception. And all of these things are spatially encoded. Facial expressions, body language. But for sound, it also picks up the auditory environment. And your emotional perception of sound is over on that side as well. So uh, it's not just visual integration of faces. It's also the sound. If I say, my, what a bad dog you are today, to my dog, he wags his tail, he's happy. The prosodic content or the emotional content was not of that of telling the dog they're a bad dog. If you say in a bad tone that they're a good dog, they're going to slink away thinking that they've done something. So it's the tone, it's the song of speech. It's not the words, it's the tone. And uh, so all of that, the emotional tone, uh, the emotional context, you know, faces and body language and so forth, all that's picked up over here. That area has been turned down or turned off, basically. Well, how self-protective is that? You know, I mean, uh, uh, if, if nasty things out there uh, uh, traumatized you, uh, let's, let's turn down the dimmer uh, so that you're not... Yeah, perceiving that quite the same way. You've, you've dialed down your sensitivity. Well, you know, you're, you're going to be sensitive to uh, emotion, but you're not going to be perceiving emotions accurately. The, the perceptual location is essentially dialed down. So you may misperceive many, many emotions that just aren't really even there. Uh, so, that spot isn't working properly. And it's been uh, shown to basically be that as a signal. Uh, I worked for uh, many years with a group in Australia, STARTS, uh, Torture and Trauma Survivors. It's a, a government program for, uh, for, for, you know, uh, the stories. You don't even want to hear the stories. Uh, these, are, these are awful circumstances these people have lived through. And they're traumatized. And we saw that spot in the right temporal area so often, it became not a funny joke, but it was kind of a lab joke. Oh, there's another one of your T6 back then, uh, right temporal findings. And, you know, it's another one. Oh, there's another one of your T6s. You know, the, there's, there's more lambda. So we saw these things really commonly uh, for a few years. They eventually thought, well, <laughs> we should actually report this, you know, um, uh, when, when you see things again and again and again and again, it's time to, to uh, write it up. You could just be seeing things, you know, uh, but it could be meaningful. And until you actually publish it and have it as a testable, uh, reproducible procedure, you don't know. So, um, you know, that, and they had hundreds of cases. Now, I, I could have probably been hired to clean the data and all of that, but if you 
if you clean your own data, I mean, I can make my data make a smiley face map for a kid. So if I'm cleaning my own data, you could come up to me and say, I don't trust you cleaning your own data. Mm -hmm. uh, I would prefer an independent third party with no vested interest in this clean your damn data. So uh, I introduced the Australian Institute for uh, the Starts People uh, to Mencia, which is a group in France. It's, it's a, a group of EG high-level processors originally started by Marco Congito. And um, for those of you who are in the field, you may recognize that name as a previous Lubar student who learned how to make uh, Loretta uh, code available to the masses. So, uh, and, and he's, he's got his own uh, lifetime position in a, uh, it's like Bell Labs here in the U.S., but with a French telephone company. Uh, millions of dollars follow him around uh, for, for research. But uh, he started this little EEG company, open, you know, uh, open uh, source uh, EEG code. And uh, so I introduced them, and uh, they, they have AI data cleaning that does a very good job uh, independently cleaning all of the data, getting rid of the muscle artifact and eye movements and bad electrodes and things like that. So hundreds of cases... They sent them all over, they pressed the button on the computer and had the computer clean out all of their data set. And then show it was different between their assumed relatively normal folks and all these starts trauma survivors. The right posterior temporal findings stood out. Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just us with a lab joke, oh, there's another one of your T6s. Um, and, and, you know, you can fool yourself. I mean, it, it's, you know, uh, and, and if you fool yourself, you're the last one to know. So um, it was validating having an independent organization identify the same spots. Now, you know, understanding why and how and how to fix it and all of those kind of things are important as well. Obviously, uh, we, we have an an excess of a resting state default mode network finding. And you've got to fix the default mode network. It, that's why it didn't show up in the eyes open. You close the eyes and the default node network comes on, then that peaks pops up. You don't see it in the eyes open. You see it when they close their eyes. You have the default mode turn on. Recently, they've, they've played around with suppressing alpha at PZ. And that's default mode. There's there's four primary hubs in the default mode. Posterior cingulate, and that's a bidirectional pathway to the temporal parietal junction on the left. Then it's posterior cingulate bidirectional pathway to the temporal parietal junction on the right. Then a unidirectional to the anterior cingulate. And then the posterior cingulate all by itself. The, the, the microstate analysis of the default mode network actually shows it to be four separate pieces, mm -hmm. but the fMRI smears time for about 20 seconds or so. So you, you see a big flare at PZ and small flares at the other because they're only there one time out of four PZs there, four times out of four, posterior cingulate. So they, they actually suppressed alpha at the posterior cingulate. And, you know, is it the alpha suppression that fixed their PTSD? Well, probably not. It's control over the default mode network. 
you can have alpha and still be okay. You know, uh, you don't have to get rid of your alpha if you think you've got some trauma and you never have alpha again. Uh, you just need to learn how to control your default mode network. And suppressing the voltage at uh, PZ was something that was done, uh, you know, and, you know, very fancy, well-controlled research, um, you know, neuroimaging, uh, uh, Thomas Ross, uh, you know, th th these are major researchers and funded studies. Who funds neurofeedback studies? You know, uh, this is, this is basic research, um, but it's neurofeedback, but it's also funded and high level. So, you know, welcome to the future. Um, they're funding neurofeedback research. <laughs> uh, who, who, who would have thought? Who would have thought? You know? Exactly. It sounds like you're talking about at least two biomarkers, one with eyes closed uh, and in the event uh, re related potential, and then the other eyes no, open. I, eyes, I'm eyes sorry, open, eyes open lam event related lambda potential. Yeah, with, the lambda with the, as an ERP. And then a resting state, right temporoparietal junction, uh, again, the, the, the emotional perception. Uh, location. Well, it almost sounds like the, the, the emotion system, the limbic, the amygdala, is sort of um, acting on, on the thalamus in, a, in sort of a hyper way visually when the eyes are open, but sort of suppress, almost suppressing the uh, emotional part of the... Uh, of There's a difference between detection and comprehension and processing. And it's the detection that's excessive. And it, uh, that that's what we see is the early arrival. But, the you know, let, let's say we're just talking about normal visual processing. You know, when you when you see something at about 100 milliseconds later, normally it hits in the back of your head. Shortly thereafter, in the temporal areas, the temporal parietal areas bilaterally, you're figuring out what was it and where was it? What did I see and where did I see it? And once that's established, you can respond to it. So let's say it's a go no go task, and you're you're getting thumbs up, thumbs down, hit the button, don't hit the button. Um, it, it, you you suddenly get a signal, hit the button. Well, uh, at 100 milliseconds, it hits me in the back of the head. A few milliseconds later, I I kind of decide, oh, is it one of these or one of these? You know, what is it? Where is it? And at that point, I can say, oh. It's a hit the button or it's a not hit the button. And uh, the hit the button is a little quicker, actually, in reaction time in the brain than the stopping of the hitting of the button because you have to stop something that you already started in order to inhibit it. So the thumbs down, don't hit the button, actually takes a little bit longer and it happens a little bit further forward. But when all of that is done your brain finally checks what you just did against the model of what you think you should have been doing. And that's the anterior cingulate. And, you know, if you did it perfectly well and your anterior cingulate gives you a signal back, you're going to say, oops, whether you did it well or not. And if you have OCD, and there are people that have had trauma that become a bit obsessive, if you have OCD, no matter what kind of response you had, this cingulate is not working well. And it gives you cognitive emotional flexibility if it's working well. So when it's not working, you could be stuck on, like obsessive compulsive disorder, or stuck off, 
procrastination, lack of initiation, lack of motivation, anhedonia. So that, you know, that it's, it's normal function gives you a range of options, but you could be stuck on one end or the other when it's not working. So um, that last step of the, you know, detect, you know, visual detection, figuring out what is it, where is it, responding appropriately to either on or, you know, yes or no, and then this, the self-monitoring. That's one loop. That's one loop of processing. And you can see the P300, about 300 milliseconds after it, and then the about 400 milliseconds, you see that anterior cingulate signal. And it actually takes two loops for you to be consciously aware of something. The first loop to lay down a memory of it, and the second loop to compare your perception to your recollection. And only then are you consciously aware of what you've just perceived. You, you can you can respond to something without being fully conscious of it. Uh, and and usually the CPT tasks are uh, looking for instantaneous responses, not deep thought. So uh, they're, they're they're looking at this, you know, first 400 milliseconds. They're not looking to see whether you're uh, consciously aware of what you've seen. Right. But, so. Uh, Libet uh, in in actually late seventies in in San Francisco uh, uh, suggested it takes about five hundred milliseconds to become consciously aware of something. So one hundred milliseconds hits the back of your head. Two hundred milliseconds up front. Three hundred milliseconds. Aha! Uh, I'm you know I'm con I'm aware of it at at two hundred milliseconds of something. And I can differentiate that something from something else at 300 milliseconds. Is this a go or a no-go? But this, it takes a second loop to become consciously aware. And then it only has to hit the front. So the first loop is a 300 millisecond P300. The second loop, you only have to have 200 milliseconds of it to hit you up front. The second time it hits the awareness, you have a conscious awareness. That's why it takes 500 milliseconds. You know, so the, even the math works out too well. You know, it's, uh, uh, the model of consciousness, consciousness is quantifiable. It, well, the brain has quantum effects in the brain. Uh, uh, the, the brain has nested rhythms, um, low frequencies that uh, the phase of the low frequency, if it's in a positive phase, uh, things are off. When it's in the negative phase, they're on. And uh, so the very, very low frequency EEG, infralow frequency EEG, if it shifts electro-negative, the brain is active. If it shifts electro-positive, it attenuates the activity and modulates the entire EEG. Um, and then theta can nest gamma uh, in, for, for memory, and alpha can nest gamma for, uh, for, for perception. So there, there's a lot of really active things going on up there. Um, and, you know, people are trying to kind of understand this cacophony of EEG and what it might mean. And having looked at it for over 50 years and well, well, well past 500,000 of them, I got kind of deluded into thinking I might have some idea of what I was looking at. But as I say, you can fool yourself and you don't really know if you think you see something, whether you're seeing something or you're seeing something so how do you test that you publish 
And so I published my observations of 11 patterns in the EEG that I thought were genetically linked. Two of them had known genetic correlates, and the others I thought were in a phenotypic, but we hadn't proven that yet. Since then, luckily, that wasn't just a totally, you know, you know, you know brain, you know, goof up of some sort. Um, and, you know, everybody has those, you know. Um, but it, they, they caught me at a good moment. Even the broken watches is right a couple times a day, and they got me at a good moment. And uh, it, it turned out that that, you know, that thought um, uh, is being validated every time it's being tested. The PTSD endophenotypic patterns of the right posterior temporal and the lambda are, are undoubtedly uh, uh, patterns that have uh, an endophenotypic uh, uh, relationship in some fashion. Uh, they're, they're just too reliable to be some random uh, percept. Uh, uh, they're not in the list of lambda waves and right temporal is not in the list of 11 that I have. Well, there's a t you know temp temporal temporal finding, but nothing specific to the right posterior temporal. So um, you know not everything is is uh, encompassed in the, in a, a single theory anyway. So well, and this makes me you know wonder a lot about how we identify PTSD. Um, and you know the, the the sort of traditional and I guess official way is through the DSM or some other similar um, diagnostic process. And, and at this point, did, what did you see say DSM? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yes, I, I put big quotes around it. You can't see the quotes out there where you're listening to me, but the quotes yeah. around the DSM. Um, obviously, the DSM does not incorporate any, I think for any diagnosis, does not incorporate EEG findings. So yeah. how do we reconcile? Because here's two biomarkers that seem to be pretty reliable, show validity, uh, and, and, and at the same time, I think the, the EEG is not necessarily specific enough for diagnostics, in, at least in- That's the trick. We have sensitivity not specificity. The right temporal marker seen in PTSD can also be seen in reactive attachment. Although some people say reactive attachment is probably trauma, you know, or, or you know, uh, developmental trauma of some sort. So having the same marker is not that big a surprise. But you can also have it in Asperger's traits in an autistic. And, you know, you might think, well, it's, it's kind of a life trauma to have autism and maybe you know but it's it, it's social perception and the autistic autistic that won't look you in the face well how are you going to judge facial expressions unless you look at somebody's face so their 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 area for facial expression and and emotional comprehension is also dulled um but you know it's an entirely different uh, dsm etiology mm -hmm. EEG, QEG is great at sensitively identifying features. The, the interpretation of exactly what they mean ends up being the next step. And uh, it, you're, you're well served by doing a correlation between behavioral observations and the EEG observation to differentiate the list of four or five things it could be 
you know, you start to look at other things and it builds down to the one thing that it is. Um, you, you can have slow alpha in the temporal area uh, from migraine, migraine ischemia, headache, you know, migraine headache. You can have post-traumatic ischemia, that pounding headache after you had a head trauma. You can have long hauler COVID ischemia from inflammation causing ischemia. They all look the same. It's a slow edge of alpha. Again, this, the biomarker is sensitive, but not specific. But if you give the person a list of three things, yes, could be migraine, could be trauma, could be long hauler COVID. You know, they, they might also have had a head injury and long hauler COVID. They might have trouble teasing those out, but it, it, it limits the list down to a workable number. And you can usually, you know, kind of tease out which one of the small number of options that you have is really being, you know, represented in front of you. Are you enjoying this podcast? Find out more about this episode's guest at their NRBS webinar. We have both free and very inexpensive continuing education webinars. So whatever level of interest you have in biofeedback, neurofeedback, and neuromodulation, you'll find plenty to choose from at NRBS. Follow the links in the show notes. We hope to see you at an upcoming program. With the psychological trauma, would the posterior lambda be more specific for that versus getting hit in the head or, or long COVID? Yeah. In fact, hit in the head doesn't necessarily give you long hauler. Uh, I mean, it doesn't necessarily give you lambda. Um, uh, if you have um, uh, eyes open and eyes closed, uh, you might have a better guess that this is, you know, both biomarkers for this and only one biomarker for that. I mean, uh, you, you kind of uh, whittle your list down by looking at multiple uh, states, eyes open and eyes closed. But, you know, in Israel, they actually looked at a, a, a kibbutz that had a, 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 a terror event and that traumatized everybody in the kibbutz. I mean, it's, imagine... You know, being the, uh, the at the end of uh, a, an a, a attack as a as a community, everybody's traumatized, and they they went in and studied this group, and a year later they found that sixty percent of the people in the kibbutz basically had already kind of felt like they were past their trauma. They were they had gotten over it, and the researchers think, okay, we've got time A at 100%, time B a year later at 60% success. If we wait another year, maybe it'll drop down and we won't have very many more. But that 40% that didn't recover just didn't recover. What makes you not recover from a trauma? Arousal level. You know, let, let's simplify the model. I mean, PTSD is really a complex thing. Phobia, something really simple. You know, your arousal level was a bit high and you were exposed to something that's, that startled you. Your arousal level got super high and you panicked and now you, you have a phobia to the thing that triggered that. A spider, uh, heights, um, you know, who knows, uh, <laughs> whatever it is, you know, um, uh, uh, but at, at some point, uh, you're going to go to the therapist and they're going to try to decouple you from your 
you know, a phobia. Step one is to lower your arousal level. If you don't lower the arousal level, the hierarchy of, you know, potentially things that are closer and closer and closer to being like the thing you've got a phobia about, that hierarchy won't work. The hanging dice in the car is a spider. You know, uh, anything, it's a spider. You know, you're being triggered by anything and everything. So you can't really get a hierarchy unless you drop the arousal level and learn how to hold it down low. And uh, uh, that's important. Things like HRV, uh, very, very good to end up controlling sympathetic over arousal, which goes along with PTSD. You know, people who have trauma end up having sympathetic and parasympathetic problems. Fight, flight isn't the whole story. Freeze is the next bit. And that's actually parasympathetic. You know, if you're studying mice, how do you study stress in mice? Look for poop. The mice will shit all over the place if they're stressed. And uh, they count the number of poops in the cage. That's, you know, that's the stress markers, the number of poops. Um, that's a parasympathetic. I mean, uh, uh, it will scare the shit out of you, you know. And that's literally, you know, the, the parasympathetic response that is, is to evulse. Uh, uh, there are some sea creatures that will literally turn themselves inside out so they look, you know, all, all their guts are hanging out. They're ugly. That, that, oh, that, I don't want to eat that fish. <laughs> so the predator says, ugh, <laughs> um, I'll, I'll let that, uh, I'll, I'll let that be. Uh, but that was a parasympathetic, I'm about to die, you know, a, a, a feigning death. Uh, oh, why didn't you scream when you're being assaulted? Well, <laughs> I, I thought I was dying, you know. It was there wasn't a scream coming out of me. This was parasympathetic, not the fight flight. Uh, I'm not fighting. I'm not flighting. I'm I'm you know uh, I'm I'm uh, uh, failing here. And uh, fight flight and uh, absolutely parasympathetic collapse, the freeze. And you know you freeze uh, as part of the. Uh, fight flight response again uh, uh, and Porges's work on um, on this is really quite well developed um, so I uh, urge people to look at uh, Porges's work obviously uh, as, as uh, uh, important and uh, uh, Bessel van der Kolk's work as well I mean those are two you know big names uh, within uh, the, this general area and, and you can hear uh, in an earlier episode, I interviewed Porges about the polyvagal theory. And so it's, it's definitely worth, worth figuring out how to incorporate as, we're, as I think we're doing. I, I do want to talk a little bit about intervention, neurofeedback intervention. Uh, so you, you've been a major player for, for a while in, in the history of neurofeedback training. Um, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how neurofeedback has approached this problem it's it is one of the major uses of it. So I'm, I'm I think it'd be really interesting to hear your take on that history a little. You bit. know the, uh, the the clinical work has been largely driven by clinicians in instinct. Um, I make this guess, and I'll try this approach and see if it might work. 
I mean, if you don't have efficacy literature, you've got to be the researcher. You're doing an experiment of an N of 1, which is perfectly fine. I mean, uh, when I started in the field, there was no efficacy for anything. I had alpha from Camilla uh, and a, a bit perhaps from Elmer Green as well. And I had, had Sturman's SMR and you know, people knew there was beta in the EG, but they were, at the, there was no efficacy for anything. So everything we did was experimental. Yeah. Uh, uh, you know, uh, so in in running into people that had trauma, uh, we we see this giant alpha marker right posterior temporally, and uh, we we basically figure we're going to have to get rid of that alpha. It's a resting state signal. I want to gently stimulate the temporal lobe because the temporal lobes don't like a lot of overactivation. Uh, and you can suppress that alpha by training slightly faster frequencies in the SMR frequency range, but this is not SMR in the temporal lobe. You call it SMR in the temporal lobe. Barry will hunt you down. Barry's not feeling so good these days, is so I'll have to help him. <laughs> you know, uh, SMR central, you know, the... Uh, the, the central motor strip. Um, uh, but if you go CZ to the right temporal, you can train SMR frequencies with that montage, and that's going to gently activate the temporal lobe. You're going to train it eyes open, but you're literally teaching them to activate that location. And when you close the eyes, the alpha will have reacted. So uh, we, we, we gently activate the temporal lobe to break up that idling rhythm. Um, if you could train it eyes closed, you could turn directly to suppress it. Um, I mean, obviously, you don't always have an fMRI machine for fMRI feedback. Uh, if you do, you're doing a lot better fiscally than I am. You know, I mean, uh, uh, I only know one person who got an fMRI machine because they wanted to train their OCD. <laughs> only one, an N of one person. And uh, he, uh, it worked, and uh, he had an applied... Uh, 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 applied fMRI center in San Diego, uh, which he operated for a few years and then sold it at a good profit. Um, uh, uh, so, you know, there, there's expensive ways to do it with fMRI feedback, but, you know, goodness knows it's expensive enough doing it the old-fashioned way with just EEG. Um, uh, the, the people who've done their clinical work started working trying to work on the orbital frontal area, which they know inhibits the amygdala. I mean, the neuroscience of, you know, poke this and see what happens has been done in laboratories. And, and the clinician thinking, well, how do I get at the amygdala? I can't, like, poke it from the surface. It's too deep. So what, where, where can I tap into the network that regulates the amygdala? Well, the right orbital frontal. Well, where's the orbital frontal surface? Well, EEG techs would take a nasopharyngeal lead about an eight and a half inch long coat hanger style wire with a bend in it with a silver ball, a centimeter silver ball on the end of it and stick it up your nose to get to the bottom of the frontal lobe. You know what that feels like? Take your finger and stick it all the way up to your nose to the end of it. That's what that feels like. It's it will create a bloody nose half the time. I mean, nobody wants to do that. Nobody does that much anymore uh, because you don't have to. Uh, you can do it with a, a sphenoidal uh, 
uh, needle electrode. Uh, or, as the EEG person basically uh, thought of, why don't we just put an electrode kind of here and try and pick up the orbital frontal area from here? Yeah. And yeah, we, we basically uh, end up looking for that spot that can inhibit the amygdala. And at that point, uh, um, th they found good clinical results. And uh, it doesn't, you know, it, 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 you, a clinician with an insight uh, that, that then does the work. Um, and, you know, there's always people that will, will complain uh, um, uh, about somebody doing something that's not proven. Okay, all my work early on was not proven. So everything I did could be complained about. But, you know, when you go to the circus, uh, you, the person leading the cir circus gets everybody excited. But they, you come to see the elephants, and the elephants will jump around and they'll shit to the street. And then when the circus passes, uh, then the people sweep up behind. The elephants are the researchers. They're, they're the one that everybody comes to see. The people sweeping up afterwards are, 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 are just the researchers. They're not the clinician. The clinician does the elephant, the researchers, the sweep up crew at the end. You're tidying things up, making order of it, making things nice and clean and neat. Um, but it's the elephants that people, uh, that's where the, the excitement is. And the clinicians that are uh, getting the insight and working based on their initial insight, uh, that's where all the action is. And not everything you try is going to work, but if it works, you're going to mention it to your friends. You know, I tried this. It seems to work for me. Why don't you kick this tire the same way I'm kicking the tire and see if it works? And if a bunch of people find that the same technique works, it's a technique that is going to end up being adopted by more and more clinicians. I've been in the field 50 years. I've seen a lot of protocol du jour come up. You know, I tried XYZ. Why don't you try XYZ? And if it works, next year everybody's trying XYZ. Uh, if it doesn't work next year, it was just the protocol du jour last year, and it didn't really pan out, so people aren't using it. Uh, it things that work tend to be kept on the repertoire of things that work. And, you know, um, uh, Clinicians' insights that have worked well end up having uh, entire followings, uh, asking the original clinicians, you know, how to do it, and you know how, why to do it, and when to do it, and uh, they end up with courses and all that. So you 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 can see at this point there are uh, uh, there's there's you know thousand dollar two three day courses on how to how to treat people and. Uh, they're being taught by people that had the initial clinical insights and um, and had worked hard enough to actually prove that they do work, and they do. Um, if if they didn't work, we wouldn't see this kind of clinical, you know, uh, line out the door uh, demanding services. And uh, 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 you know, the proof's in the pudding, but it's not how the pudding looks; it's how the pudding eats. And um, there are enough people who have tasted this pudding, and it works. It you know it eats well, and uh, uh, it's it's not hard to do. The clinicians aren't you know having to 
buy an fMRI machine, you know, and uh, rewire the grid for their office uh, to power it up or something. I mean, a Siemens three Tesla scanner takes a lot of megawatts. You, you, you don't you don't plug that into the the wall outlet, you know. Uh, so uh, it, it requires a whole different uh, uh, kind of uh, level of, of uh, investment. But uh, simple old-fashioned EEG machines with one and two channels seem to work. There's some people working with Z-scores with the larger uh, electro sets. There's, as I say, there's more than one way to skin a cat. Now, I, I've got a dog. I like cats. I'm, we're not that. That saying is about bulldozer drivers. That skinning a cat is driving a bulldozer, and and you can't tell a bulldozer operator what to do. <laughs> Go ahead and try it. Sometimes they'll do it the way they want. So uh, they'll, they'll they'll come up with their own method on how to skin that cat. Which which does remind me of uh, of the the many variations of. Uh neurofeedback and and some people who are insist that their way is 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 the way but yeah. as you're as you're saying there's there's lots of ways to go about it and there are lots of different yeah. approaches there's uh, you know amplitude training z-score uh 19 channel loretta infraslow infralow uh slow cortical uh neurooptimal um lens work is there as and this may be a bit of a Tricky question. Let's put it that way. Is there a theme that seems to run through them? I mean, is there a is there a unifying uh, in, intervention? You know, let let's say the the infraloaf people. You know, uh, everybody's been telling, "Oh, you got to." I, I don't believe that stuff until you show me some research. Well, they've got Dirk DeRitter, MD, PhD, neurosurgeon, doing fabulous work. Uh, looking at the infralow frequency, but he doesn't just look at that. He looks at the entire EEG, and and the infralow frequency nests the entire rhythmic EEG. So, uh, if you uh, let's say uh, uh, the front of the brain and the back of the brain, and on, on the remember the default mode network as PZ and FZ, two locations on the surface that are kind of uh, part of it. Uh, uh, the 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 salient network is the anterior cingulate and insulae, and you know remember insula uh, and amygdala they uh, they talk together really closely, uh, so the amygdala and insula and and anterior cingulate are the salient network, the default mode network and the salient network are like um, uh, oil and water they don't mix. Um, it's one or the other. You don't get them both. So if you if you activate one, you inactivate the other. And if your infraslow work can turn things on or off depending upon the polarity, electropositive, it's turned down or turned off. Electronegative is turned on. If you go electronegative, all sorts of EEG is dancing. If you go electropositive, the EEG quiets down. So the infralow frequency people are literally training the fast frequencies too, but only indirectly. And if they're working front to back, um, and, and you just switch uh, the polarity, basically, you can literally turn one on and the other off or vice versa. 
so that working at the midline, you can literally turn on the salience network, turning off the default mode, or turn off the salience network and go to being at rest with the default mode. And learning how to turn those two on and off back and forth is something that has been basically done for a long period of time. Um, it, uh, some of the very early neurofeedback work uh, was Lubar doing CZ SMR and FZ beta. And SMR is, is somewhat related to the default mode, but the beta up front is definitely salience. And they would train SMR and balance it with the beta. And that was teaching people control over their vigilance level, uh, but literally it was teaching control over salience versus somewhat of a default mode with SMR. And, you know, the alpha training, uh, and beta training, and all of those end up changing not just the frequency you're training, but other systems as well. The brain isn't a bunch of equalizer slides that you go up with one and everything else stays the same. When I slide one up, everything else moves around too. It's a dynamic system that's not a linear system. So there are plenty of people that have a linear model. You know, we're going to make more of this. We're going to make less of that. And they think that this is the two things that they're changing. Well, I'm afraid that everything else changes too. So, you know, the, the, the real simple models of the brain is not reality. Um, it, it's very complex. And if you're changing the infra-low frequency, you're changing the fast frequencies as well. So in Europe, in the late 60s, early 70s, neurofeedback was slow cortical potential work. Niels Burbomer out of Tübingen. They threw away the oscillating EEG focusing on the infralow frequency range. In the US, we threw away the low frequency range because that's all noise, and we focused on the oscillating rhythms. And the people training oscillating rhythms look at the people doing slow stuff and say, oh, that's, that's artifact, we, we throw that away. You know, they, but until you put both of those systems together, you don't really know how the brain is working. Consciousness requires infralow frequency and gamma to be related. The, the bispectral index, which is used to measure depth of anesthesia, um, it's simply looking to see the correlation between the slow cortical potential and the gamma. If the neural networks have gamma, uh, you're binding networks. A bound network makes gamma. Gamma is not made anywhere. It's made everywhere. There's a bound network. So if you make a network, you've got to have an, a functional brain that makes gamma. But if you make gamma without it being related to the infralow frequency, that's not consciousness. You know, uh, they, they have to relate. And uh, there's been millions and millions and millions of surgeries using this stupid relationship between 0.38 and 38 hertz. And it could be anything else below 0.5 and any gamma frequency. You know, 38 isn't the magic number. It could be 42. You know, so um, it, 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 it's, it was easy math, 0.38 and 38. Um, now, their index in the little black box goes lower than just unconsciousness. They look for flat lines and where suppression is being too deep for your surgery. 
um, but the, for consciousness, the relationship between gamma and slow cortical potentials is the critical relationship. Any drug that alters your consciousness, not like Tylenol to take out a headache or something, but something that throws you for a loop, um, it's going to change either the low frequency or the high frequency EEG. Ayahuasca, psilocybin, DMT, uh, uh, you know, the list goes on and on and on and on. Uh, uh, peyote, uh, cactus, mescaline, um, that the, there's a whole long list. Uh, salvia divinorum is an herb that you can smoke. It gives you six to ten second long waves that are a thousand microvolts in size. When was the last time you saw an EG wave like that? You know, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, people that worked at Schwartz Computational Neuroscience Center had, had looked at drug research, but they look at regular drug research where, you know, it's, it's not really all that dramatic in EG land. And they were exposed to seeing data that came from, uh, uh DMT. And they couldn't believe how wild the EG, um, the changes in the EG are dramatic. Uh, uh, this isn't some subtlety you're looking for. Uh, so uh, literally, uh, uh, salvia divinorum with a 6 to 10 second long wave, that's infralow frequency, you know, decasecond uh, or, or slower. And, and, and you're looking at, uh, at uh, uh, you know, the gigantic 1,000 uh, microvolt waves. Uh, normal EG, 50, 100 microvolts, you know, somewhere in that range. Young kids, maybe two, 300 microvolts. Um, you know, younger kids have more metabolism and slower EEGs. The slower you are, the bigger you are. One over F, the faster you are, the smaller you are. So, um, you know, uh, we, we need to be able to look at the EEG in a complex way. The people who say my way or the highway just don't understand the complexity of how the operation of the actual brain works. Uh, the other person that has a, a way to tap into this person's problem with infralow frequency or infraslow, this is, you know, people arguing, uh, they're, they're looking at the same frequencies, the same systems, their methods are a bit different. But again, it's, uh, we're doing it right, they're not doing it right. Uh, you know, that, Let's get over the ego thing here and, 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 and just look at our efficacy and not, not worry about the, the, the camps. Uh, the camps are almost like religious uh, uh, groups or, or uh, cults. You know, the, uh, 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 if you challenge something, uh, you're thrown out of the cult. You know? uh, and in the early days, uh, it was the Church of Lubar and the Church of uh, Othmers and, you know, the totally... It's, it's, you know, if, if you're in one group and you're at a meeting and they saw you talking to the other group, they wonder what the hell's going on, you know. A lot of that fell apart when winter brain happened. It was a big social thing and it kind of broke down the barriers. If you're in a hot tub, it's hard to know what group you're in, you know. So uh, uh, it, it, it kind of calmed down some of the antipathy to, to chill out and and socialize. So I, I can imagine it did. Yeah. Well, and, and, and like the, the brain is, is a nonlinear system. I think conversations with you are often nonlinear and end up in really interesting places. Uh, but we're, we are going to have to wrap up soon. Uh, but I do, I, I like to end 
our conversations with some one thing questions, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, so what what's one thing you would like our audience to take from this discussion? You need to look at both eyes open and eyes closed. And you can't look at a short piece of EEG and assume it to contain what you need. Um, you also need to look at the brain's reaction across time. So the vigilance modeling uh, needs to also be incorporated here. People that have PTSD quite often have sleep problems. And if you don't sleep well, the vigilance regulation is not going to go well. And uh, you, you can start to spot that in the EG uh, across time. Uh, uh, and don't assume any one group has the whole story. Uh, um, the story is bigger than one group. It's bigger than two groups. It's bigger than ten groups. Um, uh, it, it doesn't have groupings. Um, and uh, I'm I'm happy to see um, uh, interaction between what used to be somewhat opposite ends of the of the field. Um, uh, I I I would like people to step back away from doubting. Uh, uh, other people's work uh, without absolute proof that there's something not right with it. Uh, if somebody is reporting that they're getting an outcome, um, uh, let's see if they can replicate it. Uh, let's see if other people can replicate it. And um, uh, we don't need to be a circular firing squad, uh, which we've been effectively for the last 40, 50 years. Uh, it's not a good way to promote the field. That, that sort of leads me to another question. Um, more generally, our field is not really accepted within a lot of mainstream health and medicine. Uh, so for people who have uh, who have PTSD, when there's so many options for intervention, whether they are uh, prolonged exposure or EMDR, Zoloft, other medications, things like that. What what can we tell them to sort of bring them to neurofeedback, which can be effective and often doesn't have the same adverse effects? Well, uh, unfortunately, it's it's hard to talk to people uh, with a single voice from within our field. Our field has lots of little uh, groups that are clinical groups and it has national societies to two or three some international societies that doesn't have a single voice so um, uh, when we speak as a field it's a cacophony uh, and uh, um, uh, we, we need to end up having a consensus uh, position on things and uh, the Society for Applied Neuroscience in Europe and APB and ISNR and the Australasian Society. There's a Spanish society. There's an Italian society. There's an English society. Uh, Korea has a group. I mean, the, the, uh, we need to end up having a consensus uh, uh, a position about it. There have been consensus position papers done, uh, a brief basically developed for ADD, ADHD that really dismissively answers all the questions uh, uh, an open-minded skeptic might have. 
Now, if they're closed-minded, don't you know? Don't don't even bother with it. But if it's an open-minded person, all we need is an open-minded skeptic that will end up allowing the work to happen. Um, in in my work with epilepsy, I mean, uh, there's there's nobody that thinks that you can train somebody away from having intractable epilepsy. None of the medical community think this is um, a thing. And we've done it again and again and again and again. Intractable epileptics that are scheduled for brain surgery as their next step um, that end up being free of meds and free of you know, their seizures, uh, medication-free and seizure-free. For years, uh, 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 little Maggie's been, I think, seven years now. And um, uh, we just published about Isabella, uh, who graduated with honors from Baylor uh, in a and a, a four-year uh, full-ride tennis scholarship. And she was an intractable epileptic seven years before that graduation. So, uh, um, you know, we, we've got a good track record uh, of proof, but it, it requires an open-minded skeptic. Uh, if the epileptologist working with the client told them no, we would probably not have the ability to work with the client. All we have to have is a, I don't know, go ahead and try it. And that's an open-minded skeptic. I don't really know, and that's not my expertise, uh, but I don't, I don't know not to. So, you know, uh, it, you know, it's, it, we're about ready to cut your brain up. Why don't you give this uh, non-invasive approach a try in the interim? And, you know, when, when the seizures stop, they look at the EEG, and if it's clean, they don't want you to be on meds any more than you want to be on meds. Apologies for the dog barking in the background, but that's that's Sam. Everybody who works with me knows Sam eventually. Yes. It, uh, but, the, you know, um, our, 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 our field basically has techniques that work. And... Um, uh, the, our reputation, if you are just within the U.S. and you, you don't do international travel and you don't see it spreading internationally and its acceptance within academic universities throughout Europe, um, you look at the iSync Brain Group in South Korea. Uh, they've got uh, there's software and hardware accepted in the medical facilities and and universities studying things in Korea. They've gotten approval through the FDA here. They're working at with you know people at Harvard on cognitive uh, impairment. I mean the uh, you know it, 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 if you just stand on the ground in the U.S., you don't feel it moving. Um, the the position of people in the U.S. is set based on their historic knowledge. And historically, we didn't have much efficacy literature to stand on. In fact, we didn't even uh, agree to efficacy standards until much more recently. Uh, I was president of ISNR, and Don Moss was president of AAPB. And we agreed together that the field needed one position on efficacy, not two or three. So we, we we formed a task force and came up with the hierarchy of what kind of evidence you needed to have what kind of claim. Is this you know, purely investigational? Is it an anecdote or an, a, a single case study? 
Well, that's, that's still experimentation. You know, uh, that there's no efficacy proof there. If you've got some structure, you can get to the possibly efficacious. And then if you've got more structure with some randomization and control, probably efficacious. If you've got well-structured studies, you can call it efficacy, you know, fully efficacious. And if you really have run the horse race and you, you, know, you, you know you're the best horse in the race, you can call it specific. So that hierarchy of steps of how, how much you can claim was actually set up many years ago now. Uh, but until we had that, uh, you go to a meeting and somebody say, I know somebody with XYZ disorder. Oh, we could treat that. You know, uh, well, based on what? You know, uh, well, maybe it's just an anecdote, in which case you better explain the level of efficacy that you've got, you know. Uh, uh, but our, our, our field internationally is exploding. It, uh, there's big money flowing into EEG projects all over the world. And AI and EEG are going wild together. Uh, <laughs> But it, it'll be a while. Uh, uh, everybody's got an AI algorithm. Nobody's got a data set to train the damn thing with. You know, uh, and I, I quit counting at five hundred thousand EEGs, uh, um, and it's going to take some number like that to start to train an algorithm. Stanford was all excited. Uh, Emmett Aitken, MD, PhDs got big grant money and they're ready to roll and Stanford's got 37,000 EEGs, but they're all on epileptics and uh, encephalopathies, the clinical EEGs. There's no ADD, there's no depression, there's no OCD, there's no autism. Uh, the, you know, the, the, the richness of psychiatry isn't in EEG. Neurology took EEG away from psychiatry if you're a psychiatrist and you want to be in electroencephalography, you've got to go back and take a neurology residency so they can brainwash you away from psychiatry before you learn EEG. So, uh, um, you know, uh, um, we have a, a, a depth that's recognized internationally. We have an efficacy that's recognized internationally. The field is exploding. New vendors, uh, uh, internationally, major investment internationally. Um, you know, it's uh, the field is so bright. I've got to cover one eye. Well, that sort of leads to my last question for you, which is: uh, there are rumors about your retirement. Mostly, I think, started by you. Uh, do you care to comment? Uh, I retired from writing reports, which I did a lot of uh, for many, 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 many years. And we were just about to shut down the company because we were having trouble finding somebody that could write a report that I thought was worth reading. Uh, and we we brought in a couple of people to give it a try, but uh, it was it was at the last minute that we uh, agreed to go ahead and, and let uh, uh, Vera, who's in Saint Petersburg, Russia, uh, read for us. Now Vera's seen my work since 2012 when her texts in her lab. Were processing data for us. They, they could see my reports. Um, her reports look like my reports. Uh, uh, the language I have used, compensatory mechanisms. Who the hell writes about compensatory mechanisms in a re an EG report? You know, um, uh, the, uh, all the depth was there. And she's MD, PhD. She really knows her stuff. And 
she's got the credentials, and I just don't have all. You know, I, I'm without credential at all. And, um, you know, I, I, I'm just a loose cannon on deck, you know. Uh, uh, so, uh, uh, but we, we, we kept the company running. Uh, so I, I basically don't have to write reports. But I still, before the company formed, I could consult with people about EEGs. I just couldn't do full QEG processing with database. That's competing with my own company. So I review EEGs with people and uh, with groups. I've got uh, about four or five different groups of, uh, sometimes they've been up to like 30 people or so in a group. Um, and uh, you know, go over EEGs um, and uh, learn the waveforms. It's pattern recognition. How do you learn EEG? You look over the shoulder of somebody who's reading EEGs a lot. And after you've seen the waves, pointed out and drawn under, see this wave, you know, uh, when you've seen it enough times, you can spot it. How do you know your grandmother? Well, I've seen her a lot of times. And do you know your grandmother only when it's full frontal face, or can you tell it from a side view? Yeah, I can tell it from a side. Various montages, I can still see that damn pattern, you know. So um, I can probably tell you your grandmother from behind, you know, um, uh, in a crowd. I think that's grandma. You know, so uh, it, it's pattern recognition, and I'm, I I try to do that with people. Uh, I try to get them to see the issue in the raw data that's going to be seen in the QEG processing later. And it's all in the raw. It, I, I'm trying to teach people to see what I can see in the raw. You know, I can look at it and say, oh, uh, the left insula is probably the source on this. Oh, how the hell can you tell that? Well, we have to go through Loretta and show it to them, but I saw it in the raw. And, you know, you have to get to the point where you can look at the raw and kind of predict what you're going to see in the queue. And uh, that's the kind of stuff I'm doing now. And I cut back my hours because half of my time is spent in environmental matters now. Uh, I've My avocation has been environmental consulting for decades, many decades hundreds of millions of dollars of negotiated settlements between industry and communities. And uh, the community I moved into has a sea level rise problem. And it's going to probably cost, you know, $500 million or more to fix uh, so that we don't end up losing the entire town. Um, you know, and I, I'm not um, a chicken little, the sky is falling. Uh, I, I'm a STEM guy. Uh, I, I don't, I'm not worried about like 10 feet of sea level rise. Our, we lose our town at one foot of sea level rise in a bad storm surge. You know, three foot of water in the downtown. City hall flooded, police department gone, can't drive into town. Um, you know, uh, we're right right on the, the largest wetland in the West Coast. Uh, uh, it's a, a federal uh, uh, estuary research lab here. So we've got a, a harbor in the town uh, that has a wall, a concrete wall on the side, and you can see kind of high tide, low tide marks on the, on the concrete. Well, a couple of feet up and you're over the concrete and the town is below that level. So, um, you know, the, the, we have to set up a, a three and a half mile long levee and a lock system. Anyway, I'm busy with that half the time. And I do my EG consulting on waveforms about half the time. And, 
uh, I stay happy. And I, I have a brain leak. I can't travel anymore. I don't, I can't go out to meetings. So, uh, once a year, uh, on my birthday week, um, we, we're throwing a meeting here in town and we can only seat about 80 people. That's the biggest facility I have in town, the yacht club. And, um, uh, the only good part about it is it has a bar built in, you know, so, uh, 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 so the discussions right after the lectures are always interesting. So, but, uh, you know, I, I'm retired, retired from report writing. And the company still provides reports for people who need reports. And they're still basically the same quality. Um, I, I go over her reports with clients still, a few clients that still need to kind of go over the reports. And, you know, I, I'm astounded at how good she is. You know, um, uh, I, uh, I, I'm not easily impressed uh, uh, by neuroscience folks who have big reputations because quite often they have one little slice of the pie and they know that really well. And congratulations on knowing any piece of the pie well. Uh, but, uh, you know, sh she seems to know most of the pie uh, really quite well. And I'm, I'm really happy to see that. Well, Jay, I want to thank you for your time. It, it's If I keep you here any longer, I'm going to start pulling some EEGs out for you to look at. So we probably should wrap up. Uh, but thanks again for joining us here on, on the podcast for NRBS. Thanks for putting up with my ramblings. And um, uh, um, it's just like any of my lectures. They're all the same. It's me rambling about stuff. And we will have an, another opportunity to hear you ramble on May 24th. So I really look forward to that. Uh, and me as well. You are listening to Healthy Brain, Happy Body. I'm your host, Dr. Saul Rosenthal. Our guest today was Jay Gunkelman, one of the best known and longest serving members of the neurofeedback and neuromodulation community. Find out more about Jay and register for his webinar in the show notes. Subscribe to this podcast by clicking the subscribe here link or wherever you get your podcasts. If you enjoy it, please subscribe, rate us, and leave reviews at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. Reviews help us get to more listeners, and that's more people who can learn about and benefit from biofeedback and neurofeedback. Also, let us know what you think by sending us email. Our address is healthybrain at nrbs.org. Healthy Brain, Happy Body is produced and edited by me. The theme music is Catch It by Coma Media. It is a production of the Northeast Region Biofeedback Society. Go to nrbs.org to find out more about the organization, including our trainings, monthly webinars, and yearly conference. Be sure to join us on our next episode as we continue to explore the keys to our well-being on Healthy Brain, Happy Body.